the important thing is you can't prepare for lockdowns. You can't prepare for bans. But what you can do is you can prepare for pivot. That's Takumba Ishmael, co-founder and managing partner of the investment management firm Alethea Capital. You can prepare to have that entrepreneurial mindset that says, okay, so there's this thing that's come along. There's not a lot I can do about it, but what can I do to mitigate the impact of it? As we continue to weather the COVID-19 storm, we find ourselves operating in an ever-evolving new normal, one that features total economic shutdowns, funding scarcity, and existential risk for startups, SMEs, and big business alike. While of course there are much bigger and more pervasive issues facing African countries right now than the survival of tech startups, mission-driven social enterprises are nonetheless tasked with finding new ways to operate in our new normal. So what lessons can we learn from those who have lived, survived, or even thrived through somewhat similar circumstances in the past? From those who found themselves trying to fundraise during the 2008 global financial crisis, or who built businesses amidst and in response to other crises in Africa, including other infectious disease and political crises. In this special episode of The Flip, we speak to those with firsthand stories to tell and insights to share. Lessons from the past for the entrepreneurs of today. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. As the COVID-19 crisis and the second order effects of the lockdown on the economy continue on, I've seen many around the world compare what we are experiencing today to the 2008 financial crisis. The accuracy of these comparisons notwithstanding, it is perhaps the closest comparable experience in recent memory. So I started my research for this episode by looking into what startups on the continent were founded at around the same time. However, as many countries in Africa experienced a positive GDP growth while the developed world saw significant downturns, I had initially thought, as others had concluded, that the global financial crisis did not have an outsized impact on the continent. In my conversation with Takumba Ishmael, who we just heard from in the opener, she readily set the record straight from her experience in Nigeria at that time. When it first happened, people were like, oh, you know, Africa's shielded, Nigeria's shielded. But if you look at the chain reaction, there is no bank in the country that didn't depend on international financing flows. So when financing dried up in the US and the UK, the first areas where fund providers began to cut down on was beyond their borders. While African economies were believed to be rather disconnected from the global economy, the crisis of 2008 did have an impact on local financial institutions. So the banks began to to feel the crunch. And at the same time, some of the international firms who also had direct funding were feeling the crunch. And that also included oil and gas companies. And oil and gas companies were the major part of the bank's um, portfolio. So actually, it did have an outsized impact. And right about this time, Tukumba set out to build her own firm, Alethea Capital. For funds like mine at the time when we started, where we were looking to see if we could raise money locally, because we felt that 
local fund providers should be interested in solving some of the developmental problems and challenges that we wanted to focus on, we found that it just wasn't a priority at all. So it may not have been of the magnitude of the US, which is like one of the main financing markets, but certainly it, it, it rattled our cage. Aletheia Capital is an investment management firm that manages private equity funds on the continent. They specifically invest in businesses that have a positive impact on economic development. And their funding is utilized to enable access to essential services, financial services, health services, energy, education. And their most recent fund, the Aletheia IDF Identity Fund, employs a gender lens investing strategy. This fund is a partnership between Aletheia and a South African firm, IDF Capital. The partnership approach has become an enduring strategy for Aletheia and is one that was born out of necessity while Takumba was fundraising in 2008. I realized that in starting Aletheia Capital back then, and trying to raise funding that I had to find a partner. Her desire to find a partner was also due to personal circumstances, which limited her travel at that time. And I also had a a baby. I had a baby in 2007. And I knew I didn't want to be traveling the world and also traveling the world at a time of such crises uh, fruitlessly. So fortuitously met um, Goodwell and they were also looking for a partner who could make investments on the continent and raise funds with them. Goodwill Investments is an impact investor based in Amsterdam, with offices in Nairobi and Cape Town. Their desire for local partners in West Africa created a mutually beneficial opportunity for the two firms, where Goodwill focused on the fundraising and Aletheia focused on deploying capital. What was brilliant for them as well at the time was that Because of the crisis, they had to think about a different kind of investor. They didn't rely on your typical development finance institution, but they were actually in a place where they could speak to high networks that wanted to have this impact as well in Asia and in Africa and the Dutch pension funds at the time. And they were able to sort of aggregate that funding. So it was a good sort of marriage where... They were in the place and could speak the language of the people that wanted to have an impact. And I was in a place and I could speak the language of the people that needed the funding to to make that impact. While Aletheia's partnership approach has endured, it wasn't a strategy Takumba originally set out to implement. It was a pivot. I previously worked at um, Oreos, which became a branch, and I was a partner there and I knew a good number of the investors because of my time at Abraj. And so the intention was to leverage those relationships to be able to source the the right kind of funding. But as a consequence of the, the way the world went and my personal situation, not being able to travel as much as the next fund manager because I was still sort of nursing, it made more sense for me to pivot the firm into partnerships. And while the partnership approach solved the specific problem at Aletheia's founding, its benefits have continued to be realized. In the past 13 years, we've always partnered because we find the synergies that make it work across geography. Our most recent fund is a partnership with another fund manager in South Africa to invest in female-led businesses because one of the narratives that we're looking to build on is how businesses can 
partner through regional integration, how we can fund an entrepreneur in South Africa who then wants to get their wares to the rest of Africa and vice versa from West Africa down into other parts of Africa. As our current crisis continues on, we've certainly heard a lot of advice of the never let a good crisis go to waste variety. But it's a sentiment that holds true for Aletheia Capital pivoting to a partnership model and for another entrepreneur, the founder of Africa, John Gossier. John, who was born and raised in the U.S., first moved to the continent in 2008, relocating to Kampala, Uganda, and shortly thereafter founding Africa. Africa was sort of like Andela, but, you know, 2008... We were much smaller. We completely self-financed, but it was meant to solve the problem of companies, multinationals, telecoms, communication companies, tech companies that were doing business in Africa, but who were still hiring foreign foreign talent. And so I made it Africa's mission to find tech talent and to um, hire them and to pull them into our organization. And then we would either hire them out on uh, contract or we would work as a consultancy and build products on behalf of the companies that hired us. At around the same time in 2008, another organization called Ushahidi was founded in Kenya in response to the 2007 and 2008 political crisis over the Kenyan elections. And shortly thereafter, John and Ushahidi developed a working relationship, which then took John down the path of doing work in the tech for good space. A lot of the clients that Africa ended up with were dealing with things that Ushahidi wasn't. We had elections in Uganda that ended up being pretty tense and contentious. And during that election, one of the things that we became aware of was that the, the government was using the mobile networks to filter out any dissent sent via text message. And so the team in Africa, we put together a solution that we spun out as a separate company that was only around briefly, but we spun it out to specifically address uh, situations where freedom of speech and uh, communication was being suppressed in developing countries. We started it because of what was going on in Uganda, but it aligned perfectly with uh, what ended up happening in North Africa in the Arab Spring. From there, Africa's work in the civic tech space continued. Africa also on occasion worked closely with uh, UNICEF on some things that were not conflict or natural disaster related, but it was more like disasters, water shortages and poverty, floods or, you know, crops failing and that sort of thing. And so we would help develop solutions for that. At this time in the African tech ecosystem's development, there was not much private funding available and Africa's client work allowed them to bootstrap. I remember what did not exist back then was um, a robust private capital network. Try as I might, I, I never raised, so we just bootstrapped. That actually ended up helping a lot because if we had been financed by outside VCs or private equity groups that were affected by the financial crisis, it probably would have been existential to the company. And beyond keeping Africa alive, their client work allowed John to start investing in the ecosystem as well. I was doing a lot of the tech for good work to make money, and then I would use that money to invest in African technologists all across the continent. So even while building technology to help a country like Uganda through its crises, John took the money from his tech for good client work and invested it right back into the tech ecosystem. 
It's fair to say that John was and is bullish on the opportunities for the continent. Yes, super bullish. My driving philosophy still is that investment is the only long-term solution to African problems. My philosophy was always, I want to invest in the Africa's private sector, and I want to do that in ways that empower local Africans to solve their own problems as capitalists in the best sense of the word. And to facilitate investment, John and Africa tapped into additional funding resources that were made available for the environment at that time. At one point, uh, Africa was working very closely with the U.S. Department of State, the public-private partnership, where they gave us support to go across the continent and offer our support as business people to African startups. So we had a campaign called Apps for Africa, 16 companies across 12 African countries, uh, where we gave them, essentially they were grants, but we invested in them as if we were VCs. And a lot of great companies came out of that campaign. One of them is still active in Ghana right now. They're called Farmerline. This is an experience that seems to mimic what we're seeing today. As development banks, impact investors, and other ecosystem support organizations activate impact challenges related to COVID-19. And it culminates in a piece of advice John would give to current entrepreneurs. Figuring out whatever the business verticals they're in, how they can address problems that maybe feel a little opportunistic, but those are the problems that, that society is dealing with. And that's why business exists. It's either for convenience or to solve a problem. Find the opportunity in the moment. It doesn't mean you have to change your whole, I mean, you might decide to change your whole business model to be something completely different than you that you didn't see before. But you could also turn this into an opportunity to find uh, new customers through what it is you already do. Those sort of short pivots can get you through the crisis and they might lead to whole new experiences or business lines that weren't aware of before. Earlier in season one, during our three-part series on venture capital, Keith Davies, the ex-CFO of South African fintech Zona, had this to say. The best competitive strategy is to survive. And the best way to survive is to be cash flow positive. It's a sentiment that holds true for John in Africa, where he leveraged client work not only to survive, but then to make investments out of their balance sheet. And it holds true as well for Box Commerce CEO Craig McLeod, who as an ex-VC himself, believes strongly in the negotiation leverage gained by not needing cash from investors to survive. We knew that raising takes time. So we needed a business model and we needed regular revenue and I didn't want to be too dependent. I knew that the worst bargaining position for a startup is needing money. In the final episode of the three-part series on VC, season one, episode eight, we also talked about innovative finance and the ways in which entrepreneurs cobble together funds from a variety of different investors using a variety of different investment vehicles. For Box Commerce, their method of survival has been service-based revenue. We were able to parlay that into decent kind of 90-day projects, and that helped us have continuous and good revenue. As with any startup who sets out to diversify, as we've seen many other startups on the continent do, it raises a question. How do you manage your resources? How do you balance the utilization of your resources for your main thing versus spending time, money, and energy on diversified priorities? I think there is a needs-must portion. If you're not well-funded and you do want to survive and you're determined, you're, you're going to find a way. And that may even mean delaying product launches if you have to. We've delayed one of our products once or twice. And I said, it's funny, we're, we're building stuff for 90 days within people, but over six months, we haven't delivered our item. 
But for Craig, setting up their service-based business with strong margins was crucial to ensure that they didn't have to delight delivery of their main thing with regularity. The first rule is margins. One of the biggest mistakes you'll make is you're undercharged just in order to get work. Have a decent margin. And the moment you have a decent margin, what we're doing right now is I'm running a team for my startup and a focused team just for the customer. And so neither delivery is having to be compromised. But it comes from learning the very hard to do thing of saying, no, this is our price and sticking to it and, and being willing to live with that. Because what can also happen on the other end of that thing, you go in, you're under charge, you stretch yourself too thin, you compromise both the customer and your startup. Proper margins has allowed Box Commerce to ring fence separate teams to focus on deliverables for the company and the clients respectively. Meanwhile, for Craig and Box Commerce, and now more than ever, especially in a funding scarce environment, it's all about cash flow. And there's a great Business Insider article about this, and it says, you know, how long can companies survive with a large enough cash buffer? In the article, which I've linked to in the show notes, the relevant category here is called high-tech digital services. And they're only set for 33 days, and that horrified me. In my business, I run minimum forward cash flow, and forward cash flow buffer says, how much money do you need to survive for how long with no revenue coming in? And I run six months to a year. Craig's reliance on cash flow due to his experience fundraising for a South African-based business has left Box Commerce relatively well positioned to weather the COVID-19 storm. And they're not the only ones who, given the inherent challenges of operating on the continent, may be better positioned to make it through an economic downturn. Here's Takumba Ishmael again, whose Alethea Capital is an investor in the Nigerian mobility company Max.ng. And you may recall, Max and other ride-hailing companies went through a crisis of their own not too long ago when the Lagos state government banned Okadas back in February of this year. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? When you look back, you say, well, that was that was lucky because they had to start thinking earlier. And, and I think as entrepreneurs, if there's one thing that I want to emphasize more for entrepreneurs is that we must always wake up thinking there's a crisis, even when there isn't one, because we need to have that fire in our belly to continue to reimagine ourselves. Certainly the Okada ban left Max more resilient and diversified than before. Max has already had to go through that reimagining because they had to face a crisis before everyone else was facing a crisis, which means that now with this lockdown, they are actually more diversified than they would have been previously, such that they have a healthy portfolio outside of the locked down states. At the moment, it's not every state that's locked down. So having to deal with that problem almost prepared them for this time. It's a lesson to us all, really, that we should be preparing for a crisis even before a crisis. This mindset informs some of the recommendations Takumbo has been making to our portfolio companies from a business best practice perspective. But we're also saying where we've been telling you about actually proper risk management, and business continuity planning, this is now real. Because if you weren't thinking about risk management before, you now know that you need to be thinking about the different risks that your business is likely to encounter and how you mitigate against that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to cover every risk. I'm not sure everybody would have planned for a pandemic. But if you didn't have a risk management framework before, you you, you can't be without it. And I've found that that's an area where I've had to keep on fighting with my entrepreneurs. 
With proper management procedures and risk frameworks in place, perhaps then the intangibles of entrepreneurs around the continent will get them through the COVID-19 crisis. I would just get scrappy. I don't think I've ever met an entrepreneur in Africa that wasn't constantly shifting with the landscape and the times, and they kind of get very natural with it, the state of being there. As always, my be Mike Shio and I sat down to discuss this episode. And in this case, we were very weary about how we, as the flip, approach this COVID-19 situation. There are best practices, of course, and maybe more businesses will continue to adopt more stringent risk management procedures, as Takumbo suggests, or hold a larger balance sheet, as Craig suggests. But I'm sure no one put global pandemic and full economic shutdown in their previous scenario planning. So what's most useful for entrepreneurs at this time? That's what Shio and I had a chat about. Take a listen. There's certainly some good practices and best practices, but talking about talked about 2020 hindsight, they're easier to say looking back. Some people adhere to some good practices, others adhere to others, and which ones were better in this time, I don't know. Um, and I think no one does. Such a force majeure, like my approach to force majeure is just always just like, you are where you are, it happened, now what? The thing of what you should have done, I find to be really useless. Yeah. the only, Really, the only piece of advice, advice is figure out how to get money and survive. Yeah. Maybe we should just do that. The episode should just be COVID-19 advice. Make money and don't spend it before the end of this. <laughs> yeah, maybe like just like a 10-second episode. The biggest thing always for us is not wanting to be prescriptive and... I suppose it's hard because any suggestions of what to do right now is invariably prescriptive because the reality is like nobody knows when this thing is going to end or what the economy is going to look like after this thing does end, right? Or how long it's going to last. So in that respect, does hearing stories about 2008 and other crises, like, is that useful at all? I think all information is useful. And it's also like sometimes useful in just being comforting. So some, something, you know, I've tried to do is ask a couple of older folks around me, what did it look like in the oil crisis of the 70s? What did it look like in Nigeria, especially during the coup years? What did it look like for the financial crises, dot-com bubble? But the really interesting thing is like no one speaks with that much confidence about how well that has prepared them for this moment. <laughs> um, so I, I, I do think there's maybe a certain resilience that you can get and that, that just allows you to react quicker maybe because you're just like, these things happen. No one was like, oh yeah, you know, like I've survived this stuff. So therefore I know exactly what to do now. But I have noticed a certain calmness that might might make people be better at reacting. So I think if anything, it's just knowing that everything is going to fall apart at some point um, and seeing it happen a couple of times probably just makes you a little bit more uh, battle wary. The other thing is like, at some point, I started this experience out by saying, we can't do business as usual podcasts. But at some point, this has become business as usual, like operating in a pandemic is 
in and of itself now business as usual. So at some point, people are going to move on and still start building things and doing other things. The content that we had in the pipeline is going to become increasingly useful again as this becomes the new normal. And as people stop saying like, we're waiting till all of this is over and they just start doing the things because who the fuck knows when this is going to be over. And this is, this is what it is. Yeah. I mean, that's my approach. Just wake, wake up, wake up, see what's in front of you. Get on with it. Sleep. Exercise lots. I'm ready to just get back to normal, accepting that this is normal. Yeah. Honestly. Okay, bro, I've got to go eat. I'm hungry now. That's it for this episode of The Flip. If you like this episode or any other episodes, please do share with a friend or leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app so that others can enjoy too. And don't forget to follow us on social media for bite-sized insights and other updates at The Flip Africa. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.